Well, I thank you for the opportunity to, to be here with you guys. It's been a blessing to me and my family. I appreciate the ministry of Brother Lewis. He's a good friend and a godly man, and you got you guys have a good pastor. So, This morning, I'd like us to turn in our Bibles to the book of John, chapter 10. I'm going to be reading verses 27 through 29. And the title of my message is Perseverance and Preservation. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So we are concluding this series of messages now um, with a P, perseverance or preservation of the saints. And what one of the things we've seen as we've gone through these messages is how the doctrines of grace really undergird Christian hope in ways that its alternatives do not. We've seen how that before the foundation of the world, God unconditionally in Christ chose a people to save. And then in time, Christ came to pay the price for their sins. He fully and completely satisfied the claims of divine justice upon them. And now the Holy Spirit comes and calls them, overcomes um, the corruption of the heart, um, gives them life where there was death, and draws them to faith and repentance in Christ. And what we're going to see today is that God, what God begins, He finishes. He has begun a good work in you, as Paul put it. He will finish the good work in you as well. And what we've seen here, at least I hope you see this, is that the heart of the matter in all of these doctrines is who is the ultimately decisive actor in salvation. The question is not whether man's will is active or whether we are active and so on or God is active. The question is, who is the ultimately decisive actor in salvation, God or man? And what the doctrines of grace teaches is that the answer to that is God. God is the ultimately decisive actor in salvation. And this ties back to hope because the question we can ask is, how can you have any real hope if at the bottom of everything is your will? If, if your will is the decisive link in the chain, then really all is lost. And it's always puzzled me that folks who deny the doctrines of grace will yet extol and embrace the security of the believer, once saved, always saved. And it makes me wonder, why is it, if free will is so important in the beginning of salvation, why isn't it, why doesn't it stay important? If, 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 if our will is decisive in becoming saved, why isn't our will decisive in staying saved? And the original Arminians saw this. They, they saw that they could not embrace the perseverance or preservation of the saints. And so um, the biblical doctrine, of course, is that because God's will is ultimately decisive, God's people will be saved. So this is, this is it. To bring this all together, the, the point of the doctrines of grace is that God saves sinners. I'm going to read um, a paragraph here from G.I. Packer in his which he wrote in his introduction to John Owen's book on the atonement, the death of death and the death of Christ. 
I think this just sums up a lot of what we're saying um, so clearly. He says it better than I could, so I'm just going to read Packer to you. Um, For to Calvinism, he says, there's really only one point to be made in the field of soteriology. That is the field of the doctrine of salvation. The point that God saves sinners. God, the triune Jehovah, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons working together in sovereign wisdom, power, and love to achieve the salvation of a chosen people, the Father electing, the Son fulfilling the Father's will by redeeming, the Spirit executing the purpose of the Father and Son by renewing, saves, does everything, first to last, that is involved in bringing man from death in sin to life and glory, plans, achieves, and communicates redemption, calls and keeps, justifies, sanctifies, glorifies. Sinners, men as God finds them, guilty, vile, helpless, powerless, unable to lift a finger to do God's will or better their spiritual lot. God saves sinners. And the force of this confession may not be weakened by disrupting the unity of the work of the Trinity or by dividing the achievement of salvation between God and man and making the decisive part man's own, or by soft-pedaling the sinner's inability so as to allow him to share the praise of his salvation with his Savior. This is the one point of Calvinistic soteriology which the five points are concerned to establish in Arminianism in all its forms to deny, namely, that sinners do not save themselves in any sense at all, but that salvation, first and last, whole and entire, past, present, and futures of the Lord, to be glory forever. Amen. Well, this doctrine, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, deals directly with the hope and the future salvation of the saints. And the questions we want to ask as we approach this are questions like, do the saints persevere? Are they preserved? Or which is the better term to describe the security of God's elect? So I want to deal with both of these aspects, perseverance, preservation. And what I hope to show you is that they are both complementary realities, um, and both biblical realities. Now, what do we mean by the perseverance of the saints? We mean simply this, that the elect who are called by God to faith in Christ will never finally fall away from the faith. Now, in saying that, it's important for me to ex- explain what I do not mean by that. What I do not mean by that is sinless perfection. So some folks will 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 hear you say the saints will persevere in faith, and they'll hear oh, the saints never sin, or that the saints can't sin big. This is not what we're saying. The Bible is filled, littered with examples of men and women who were who belonged to Christ who sinned and sinned big. We don't even mean that a person who is um, persevering does not sometimes sin for long periods of time. It doesn't mean that you can't ruin your witness and, 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 uh, and because of your sin and its consequences bring about um, uh, even ruin in many respects in, into your life and family and relationships. But what we do mean is this, that the faith that God gives his elect can never finally be taken away by the devil. When you look at the life of a Christian from a wide-angle lens, when you look at it from the whole perspective, there is overall a general pattern of faithfulness to Christ, a love for God, a love for his word, and so it's like a river, right? A river flows generally, at least most of them, from north to south. The Mississippi River flows generally from north to south. But there are places where the Mississippi River runs exactly the opposite direction. But overall, 
it runs north and south. And overall, the life of a believer, the life of God's elect who've been called to faith in Christ is a life of faith in Christ. This is what we mean. The Bible teaches this over and over and over again. In fact, says that this is essential to the, the, the claim of being a Christian. So, for example, the book of Hebrews is filled with expressions like this, Hebrews 3 and verse 14, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Or Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Now I'm going to come back to this in a moment. But one thing I want to address now is, so if the, if the Bible, I hope at least you can see this. So I want to come back in just a moment and more fully establish the fact the Bible shows us that the saints do in fact persevere. But before I, I, I come back to that, at least we can agree on this. The Bible calls every believer to persevere. It, it does this everywhere as well. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews is about perseverance. It's calling these weary saints to perseverance. And what I've seen is I'm preaching now through Revelation. It's the same thing. The Revelation is preached to weary saints who need to persevere, and God is giving them a, a, a vision of reality from heaven's point of view to help them do that. So to hope that those overcome, the promises are given. So how do you persevere? How does the New Testament tell us to persevere? And you may say, well, why, why emphasize perseverance? The word hardly ever appears in the King James, Ephesians 6, in terms of perseverance and prayer. But other than that, it really doesn't appear. Well, no, but the word patience does. The patience, the word patience is everywhere in the pages of our, of our, of our Bibles. And what you need to understand is that patience doesn't mean this kind of passive waiting for something to happen. Patience is endurance. That's the Greek word there, hupomene. It's perseverance, it's endurance, often under trial. And the, the New Testament encourages us to be patient, to endure. And how does it do this? Well, it doesn't, it tells us to persevere, to be patient by looking to Jesus. If you want to persevere, you don't persevere by looking to yourself. You don't persevere, you don't keep in faithfulness to Christ by looking to your own resources, by first and foremost, by looking out of yourself to Christ. Wherefore, Hebrews 12.1, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race which is set before us. Okay. Run with patience, run with endurance, run to the end. How do you do this? Looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Looking unto Jesus, we look to him. The Apostle Paul tells us that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I know that the, the context there has to do with physical want and being patient in terms of physical want, but that certainly that principle applies more broadly than that, our Lord said, without me you can do nothing, but with him we can do all the things that he commands us to do. His grace is sufficient. So we persevere not on our own strength. We do persevere with all of our might, but doing so relying upon the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So I, again, 
Patience is not passively waiting. There's all these verbs in the New Testament that talk about um, this. I love this verb agonizomai, agonize, strive to enter into the kingdom of God, and so on. We are to, with all our might, we are to work out our salvation. But how do we do that? Because it is God who works in us, looking to Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. And then secondly, by looking to the promises of God. And of course, you can't look to Jesus apart from looking to the promises of God because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that in him all the promises of God are yes and amen, which means that all of God's promises are fulfilled in and through Christ. But we need to be people of hope and we become people of hope by looking to the promises of God. Paul says this in Romans 8. In fact, verse 24 We are saved, how? By hope. We are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. So it's hope that energizes the endurance of a Christian and hope anchored on the promises of God. Paul says this in Romans 15, in verse 4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And certainly much of the comfort of the scriptures comes from the promises of God. I love the example of Moses in Hebrews 11. In fact, I think most of Hebrews 11 is just about this point. It's how the saints persevered in the faith through the promises of God. Moses is a great example of this. So listen to this in Hebrews 11, 24. By faith Moses when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Which is amazing. Because, <laughs> I mean, this is like someone comes to your door and says, look, you just won the lottery. You just won $25 million. And saying no to that. So he, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But it, can, it gets even crazier than that. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And you wonder, well, maybe that was the right thing to do, but how in the world do you turn your back on Pharaoh's palace for affliction with a bunch of people who hate your guts? Remember hearing Henry Mahan in a sermon one time say, God had to kill half of them just to keep them off his back. This is what Moses chose. How do you do that? esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of reward. He knew what God had promised, and he believed what God had promised. And that gave him perseverance. We need to be the same way, by looking to Jesus, by looking to the promises of God, and then by looking to the means of grace. I mentioned this yesterday briefly. God has given us means of grace to help us persevere. Scripture. Again, what Paul just said in, in Romans 15.4, whatever was written before and written for our learning, we through patience and comfort of scriptures might have hope. As we hear what God has to say in his word, we are encouraged, we are exhorted, we are warned, we are convicted, we are trained through prayer. We persevere through prayer. Our Lord and the apostles, such great examples of this. We persevere through the fellowship of the saints. We persevere through discipleship. We persevere through the ordinances. You know, sometimes I think we Baptists don't emphasize this as much as we should. But baptism is something Christ has given us for our good and the good of the church. 
And the Lord's Supper is something God has, Christ has given us for our good and the good of His church and, his, and the glory of His name. And I, I just want to encourage, if any of you are, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, you claim to be a Christian, you believe in that you believe the gospel, you believe that you're a sinner, and your only hope is in Jesus Christ, and you've not been baptized, you need to obey Christ, and you need to be baptized. Perseverance. The Bible certainly tells us to persevere. Now, let's look at the preservation side. This is why I chose John 10. <laughs> this is all about preservation, isn't it? My sheep hear my voice. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. We, we've, we've taught from the beginning how that this gift of the Father to the Son is talking about God's will and election. And so here we have it all the way through. Jesus is saying, what the Father gave to me, I will never lose. No one can wrest these folks out of my hand, and no one can wrest them out of my Father's hand. And again, I know some, some people will argue that, well, yeah, no one else can, can take you out of the Father's hand, but you can take yourself out of the Father's hand. Well, all i got to say to that is that's pretty cold comfort. This is what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8.38, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, and just to make sure I didn't miss anything, nor any other creature. Now, are you a creature? Okay. No one can do it. No one can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so I'm so thankful. You know, it, 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 it uh, is remarkable to me sometimes when I think about it that God did not have to reveal this to us. He could have just kept us and left us in the dark about it, but he doesn't. He's revealed this to us, and I love that. I mean, it just shows the love that, the heart that God has, the love that God has for his people. And so I love, I love promises like this in Jude Verse 24, especially when you feel the weakness of your own flesh and you feel the power of the world. And then promises like this come now to him that is able to keep us from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power both now and forever. Amen. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Well, the Bible clearly calls us the perseverance. The Bible clearly tells us that God preserves his people. But does it in fact say that those who are preserved will persevere? I think it's interesting that in the, in the canons of Dort, so when the original Arminians were um, confronted by the ministers in the Senate of Dort, when they addressed Arminianism on this point, they addressed it from the perspective of perseverance and preservation. I think they were right. Because when we ask the question, who are kept? Well, our text, in fact, tells us who are kept. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You could translate that. They go on following me. This is present tense. It's not, they once followed me, or they'll follow me for a little bit. They follow me. This describes those who are kept. 
they persevered. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 13. He says, but the one who endures to the end shall be saved. Or listen to what the Apostle Paul says so clearly in Colossians chapter 1 and verses 23 and following. He says this. Well, he's talked about the, the Colossian believers benefiting from the, the atoning work of Christ. They've been reconciled in the body of his flesh through death so that they are presented holy and unblameable and irreprovable in his sight. And then he says this, if you continue, this is true of you, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereby Paul and made a minister. If you continue in the faith. Well, some people will argue that verses like that mean that you can be saved and lose your salvation. But we've already seen that can't be the case because God preserves his people. So what's the point here? What's, what's the point that Paul's trying to make here? What's the point that John makes in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19? John is dealing with uh, false teachers, false um, prophets, antichrists, who have come into the church and have led people away from the faith of Christ. And here's what John has to say about these rascals. Little children... It is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us. Now listen, he's calling these guys Antichrists. So these are not... These are not disobedient children of God. These are Antichrists. And they went out from us. So they once were part of the, at least outwardly, part of the church. They went out from us. But John's about to explain what this means. They went out from us, but they were not of us. So he's not saying, oh, well, they were once saved. They once belonged to Christ. Now they're antichrist. They once were saved. Now they lost their salvation. No, he's saying they were never saved to begin with. And here, he keeps going with this. He says, for if they had been of us, if they had really been Christians, if they had really been of the faith of Christ, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that it might be made manifest that they were, were not all of us. In other words, apostasy is not proof that someone's lost their salvation. Apostasy is proof they were never saved to begin with. That's the point that Paul is making as well. So, again, we're not this, nor does this mean the necessity of perseverance does not mean that our salvation ultimately and decisively depends upon human faithfulness for final salvation. Here's where you have to hold perseverance and preservation together. God preserves the saints so that they persevere. One of my favorite passages, and it's so comforting to me, is this passage in 1 Peter 1. Blessed, verse 3. I got the right Peter this time. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us unto a lively or living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept who are kept. That's preservation, isn't it? 
by the power of God. Through faith, there's perseverance unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. God keeps his people in the faith. I think this is illustrated so well in our Lord's prayer for Peter, isn't it? Peter, who was really about to deny Christ three times, and out of cowardice, run away. Jesus confronts Peter about that. But he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith go on. I'm so thankful for that. You know, Robert Remy Shane is the one I think you said, if Christ were the next room praying for you, you would not fear 10,000 devils. But distance makes no difference. He prays for you. Or I like the illustration of this in Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, you should. One of my favorite parts of Pilgrim's Progress is the interpreter's house where a Christian goes in and he sees this fire and the devil is there in front of the fire pouring water on the fire. The, the fire meant to represent the human heart and he's pouring water on the fire trying to put it out but Christian sees that instead of the fire going out, it gets bigger. And Christian asks the interpreter, what's going on here? I mean, fire, water, water's supposed to put out the fire and the devil's certainly doing all he can to put the fire out but it's getting bigger. How do you explain this? And the interpreter says, let's come around the other side of the fire. And then the other side's Christ with oil, pouring oil on the fire. You know, my friends, the devil is trying to pour water on the fire of your heart. But Christ is there on the other side, pouring oil on the fire. Don't we sing it? Don't we sing about this reality? You pilgrims of Zion and chosen of God, whose spirits are filled with dismay, since ye have eternal redemption by blood, you cannot but hold on your way. As Jesus in covenant love did engage, a fullness of grace to display, the powers of darkness in malice may rage. The righteous shall hold on his way. This truth, like its author eternal, shall stand, though all things in nature decay, upheld by Jehovah's omnipotent hand, the righteous shall hold on his way. They may on the main of temptation be tossed, their sorrows may swell as a sea, but none of the righteous shall ever be lost. The righteous shall hold on his way. Surrounded with sorrows, temptations, and cares, this truth with delight we survey and sing as we pass through this valley of tears. The righteous shall hold on his way. Well, I want to bring this to an end by talking about two implications that this doctrine has for us. The preservation perseverance of the saints. God preserves his people so they persevere. He brings them to the end. God is not simply at heaven waiting for you to make it to the finish line. He is with you all along the way. There are a couple of implications, one for hope and one for holiness that this doctrine has. So one for hope. And in particular, I'm talking about the assurance of salvation. If this is true, what it means is that you can know that you are saved. You can have an assurance of your salvation. We sang it, actually, this morning. The Apostle Paul's words in um, 2 Timothy 1.12, I know, Paul says, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded 
that he is able to keep what I've committed to him against that day. The Apostle Paul knew this of other people as well. He talks about in Philippians 4 of folks whose names were written in the book of life. Remember our Lord's words to the, the apostles when they come back and they've been able to heal the sick and make the blind see and make the lame walk and cast out demons and they are exuberant. I would be too. And they are just so excited relating their ventures with Christ. Do you remember what our Lord says to them? Do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. You can know that. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10 that we are to make our calling and election sure. Well, that would be impossible if you can't know that you're saved. Now, I know some people say, well, the only way you can have this assurance, okay, we'll admit it's possible, but the only way you can have this assurance is by divine revelation. And that the only way the Apostle Paul knew that some folks were saved was through divine revelation. Now, no, that's, this is not why we believe this. And it's not as if the Holy Spirit whispers in our ear. Rather, we, we believe this because of what the New Testament has to say about hope. And you know what hope is, don't you? Hope is not some vague wish that something might, may or may not happen. Hope is the common expectation that what God has said is true. And that leads to assurance. So how do we come at this? Now, so I'm saying that assurance is possible. I'm not saying it's always easy. And sometimes that's actually a gift of God. But let me give you three legs on which the stool of assurance stands. We mentioned the promises of Scripture, but here again the promises of Scripture come into play. We, we hear what God has to say. We believe them. So Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. Do you believe that? You can't believe that, really, and not have assurance. Or um, Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I, I, I remember a, a, a minister telling me, years ago, that he for years struggled with assurance. For years and years and years. And then one day he read that, and the Holy Spirit enabled him just to grab a hold onto it. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He said, I, I call on the name of the Lord. The promise is, I will be saved. I believe that. That's where you got to start. Not with some egg feeling, but you got to start with God's promise in His Word. Because it's true no matter how we feel. Secondly, the Bible teaches that we are to look to the character of our lives. And the reason why I say that is because there's a whole book written about this, namely 1 John. 1 John 5 and verse 13 says, These things I have written to you that you may, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know, that's assurance, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So I've written unto you so that you may have assurance. Well, how does John do this? Well, I'm not going to go through this in detail. But I, so I encourage you just to read through 1 John and see how that John points again and again to evidences of the new birth in a person's life. So for example, 1 John 2.29, if we know that he is righteous, if you know that Christ is righteous, you know that everyone that does righteousness is born of him. So what's, what's an evidence of, of life? Are you doing righteousness? Or 1 John 3 and verse 9, Whoever is born of God does not commit sin. And by the way, that's 
That's, uh, again, present tense. That could be translated, whoever is born of God does not go on committing sin. In other words, does not make a lifestyle out of sin. For a seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. So what's the evidence of a new birth? Are, um, are, have you stopped living in sin? Or 1 John 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Do you love? Do you love God? Do you love the brethren? Or 1 John 5, verse 4, Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Are you an overcomer through faith in Christ? When God comes to a man or woman, he makes them different. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by the content of our character. But when God saves us, he changes who we are. If we're going in one direction, he changes the direction of our life. And then thirdly, we have the witness of the Holy Spirit. And the reason why I say that is because of Rome, what Paul the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He says this, We have not received the spirit of bondage and into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby you cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children and heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Like the whole the whole of the 8th chapter of Romans is about assurance, isn't it? It starts with no condemnation, ends with no separation, and everything in between is about, um, there's just so many pillars to uphold those twin realities. And part of that is the witness of the Holy Spirit. Now again, I don't think, Paul is saying here that the Holy Spirit comes and whispers in your ear, you are a child of God. But rather what's, what Paul's describing here is that the Holy Spirit gives us a filial nature. He gives us this, this heart of a child. And so we look to the God as our Father through the Son. We come to Him as a child would to a father. We want to. Our prayers express that. God gives that to us. The witness of the Spirit. Of course, that can be diminished by sin. Again, this is why I, th- I think that's a gift of the Lord. He will withdraw his sins, this sins from us when we are living in sin to guide us back to the way. And so actually, I think one of the most dangerous things is a person who's living in sin thinks they're totally confident they're going to heaven. That's a very, very bad sign. You can grieve the Spirit. The Spirit is part of this, this assurance. Um, your, your, your assurance is going to diminish if you're living in sin because God is not going to be okay with that. He's going to move you into the right direction. But so thankful for these realities, so thankful for God's promises, so thankful for the work He does in our hearts, so thankful for this, this nature of a child to a father that God gives us. I love the way it's expressed by Charles Wesley in his hymn when he says, No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ, my own. God does that through the Holy Spirit. So thankful for the reality of assurance and hope. And then finally, we see that we are motivated to holiness. One of the arguments that the Arminians gave against perseverance, they said, well, if you really teach this, if you teach that the saints will finally persevere, then what that means is that uh, you've, you've just destroyed all motivation for holiness. So for them, the motivation for holiness was if you're not holy, you're going to go to hell. Now, I do recognize that the Bible does use the warnings of Scripture 
as a means of helping us to see the seriousness of sin and the necessity of perseverance. We have to recognize that. Um, so, for example, here, here's an example. Ephesians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul says this, For this you know, 5-5, five, five, that no whoremonger, no unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God on the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. So Paul is saying, those who do these things do not inherit God's kingdom. Therefore, because of this reality, don't go there. But my friends, that's not the only motivation for holiness. God does not primarily motivate the saints by holding a sword over their head. And what we see is that when our hearts, our hearts are filled with a sense of God's love, the assurance of God's love, this has the opposite effect of making someone sluggish or careless with respect to holiness. In fact, history proves this. I, I've been surprised again and again that you read the, the life of someone who's known for their, their ministry, their, their effectiveness, their fruitfulness in the kingdom of God, and there will inevitably be an experience they've had of just an overwhelming sense of the love of God for them. And that that overwhelming sense of God's love for them and of their security in that love is what really just gave fuel to an entire life of fruitfulness and ministry. You see this, for example, in 1 John chapter 3. Listen to what the apostle says here. Beloved, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Now. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So John is all about the love of God which has been manifested to us through Christ and how that we're experiencing that love now. Now we are the sons of God anticipating the fullness of the enjoyment of God's presence forever with never-ending, ever-increasing joy at the Father's right hand through Christ. Now, what happens to people who believe that? Well, John tells us, doesn't he? In verse 3, every man, not some, not most, but every man, everyone who has this hope, what do they do with that? They purify, purifies himself even as Christ is pure. And so you see this motive, this kind of motivation all throughout the New Testament. Here's another example. Colossians chapter 3. The first few verses, the Apostle Paul says, if ye then be risen with Christ, if this reality is true with you, if you are seated already in the heavens, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. You are dead with Christ, but you are alive with him in glory, and when he appears, you will appear with him in glory. What kind of life does that motivate? Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, Again, for which things say the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. So you have both of these things happening here. But you see what, what Paul begins with is not the threat, but the promise. It's the hope that we have in Christ. This motivates holiness. If we really do believe in the love of Christ for us, 
How can we not want to please him? To, to live any other way is to show that you really know nothing of the love of God in Christ. So God will preserve us. And as we, we embrace this beautiful reality of the preservation of God as he preserves us to, in perseverance, my friends, it ought to fill us with hope. It ought to make us a holy people. So let me end by asking you this. Are you weary this morning? Are you tired? Are you discouraged? Are your hands hanging down? Are your feet out of the way? Well, brother and sister, remember the doctrines of grace. Remember that ultimately it is not up to your limited resources, but you are tapped into all the resources of the Godhead through Christ. The power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that is at work in you right now. Remember what the Apostle Paul said? He said, now to him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Unto him be glory in the church throughout all ages, through Christ, in Christ Jesus throughout all ages, well without end. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. So yes, um, we can do stupid things. We can make mistakes, we can sin, we can um, leave a trail behind us of all sorts of bad things, but the reality is, is that at the end of the day, God is bigger than our problems. God is bigger than the, the storm we are about to walk into. And we can, trusting in the grace of God through Christ, know that he's going to hold us up. He is going to repair the things that we've broken. He's going to strengthen us when we are attacked. We can trust in him. You can trust in him. And I encourage you to do that today. What the doctrines of grace teaches is, to it ought, what the, the cumulative effect it ought to have is three things. Number one, it ought to cause us to give glory to God in all things. Number two, it ought to, it ought to humble us before God Almighty. And thirdly, it ought to it ought to make us trusting people who trust ultimately and finally in the sovereign grace of a faithful God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that you bless it to our souls. Lord, you did not have to reveal any of this to us. You could have just done it. But Lord, you've not only done it, you've revealed it to us. We thank you, Lord, for the richness of your word. We thank you for the love that's communicated through the, the riches and the truths of the gospel and through your word. And so, Lord, help us to feed on it now. Nourish us up. Help us to grow strong in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Keep us from falling. Perseveres to the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.